Avi's Conversational Corner, a podcast on history, culture, and politics in a broad perspective. I am your host, Avi Wolf. It was a time of rapid, terrifying, and exhilarating change. A time of scientific breakthroughs, mass politics, endless scandals, and efforts at reform. A time when new groups of Americans fought for and sometimes won their right to participate fully in American life, while others did their best to try and keep America as it was, or as they imagined it to be. With few heroes, many villains, great geniuses, and piercing questions, many of which still trouble us today. Welcome to Stumbling Colossus, a regular part of Avi's Conversational Corner, covering the gilded and progressive ages of the United States, from the end of the Civil War to the end of the First World War. You can find this and other episodes of Avi's Conversational Corner at Google Podcasts and on Amazon Music. This episode's topic, Gilded Age Shipping and the Jones Act. The Gilded Age was an era of rapid technological change in many areas, including shipping people and goods. In addition to millions of immigrants, improved steamships brought in and sent out enormous quantities of raw materials and products of all kinds back and forth from the United States and Europe. Yet by 1920, Congress passed a law known as the Jones Act, severely restricting the ability of foreign ships to move between American ports. What led to this moment? Who resisted it? And what can we learn from this today? With me to answer this and other questions is Colin Grabo, a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Colin. Pleasure's all mine. So let's start with, uh, let's start with uh, setting the scene here. What was the, uh, what were the laws uh, governing shipping people and goods uh, to and from the United States and within the United and among United States ports uh, at the end of the Civil War. So the United States has had fairly restrictive shipping laws dating back almost to the inception of the country, um, to the country's founding. If you go back to 1789, for example, one of the first acts of Congress was to impose uh, duties on the use of foreign shipping if you want to use a foreign ship to sh- uh, transport goods between American ports. But uh, at the time, this was not considered a huge economic burden because uh, U.S. shipping was some of the most competitive in the world. So being restricted to U.S. ships was, uh, again, uh, not not a substantial burden. Uh, this is because the United States, uh, the, the original 13 colonies, uh, they were home to substantial uh, forests. Uh, so lots of wood, which was a key ingredient in building ships. So plenty of uh, material for shipbuilding. Of course, the original 13 states all had waterfronts. You had a lot of people that were uh, familiar with the maritime industry, people that knew how to build ships and, and uh, cruise ships and work them. So uh, for the in the early years of the United States, we had restrictive shipping laws, but uh, we also had competitive shipping. Now, as time went on, this changed. In 1817... 
uh, we uh, the laws were changed from uh, placing duties on the use of foreign shipping, fairly restrictive duties, to just outright banning the use of foreign ships when transporting goods within the United States. Uh, again, not terribly impactful given how competitive U.S. shipping was, but as time went on, this changed. Uh, we went from the era of sail and uh, wooden ships to one of steam and iron. And around this time, roughly the mid-1800s or so, the U.S. started to fall behind. And then we, especially this accelerated during the Civil War, and then by the late 1800s, we got to the point where uh, building a ship in the United States was anywhere from 20 to 50% more expensive than overseas. Uh, U.S. shipping became so uncompetitive, in fact, that in the late 1800s, there was a famous case where someone tried to avoid uh, these shipping restrictions by uh, shipping goods from New York to Los Angeles. They did it through Belgium because at the time, the way the laws were written, if something went from the United States to a foreign port and then a foreign port back to an American port, that was permissible. So it was actually cheaper to send something uh, through Belgium than directly from one U.S. port to another because you could use foreign shipping. And then uh, we uh, go a little bit further uh, into the future, and that, that loophole was eventually closed. Um, but one uh, way that people were able to get around these restrictions was uh, sending something overland to a foreign port and then from that foreign port to an American port. So, for example, pr a prime example of this was in Alaska. People trying to transport goods from uh, Seattle for, from the US from the lower 48 to Alaska would send, send it up to Vancouver, put it on a foreign ship, and then, then up to Alaska, substantially cheaper. Well, US shipping companies did not like this, understandably, uh, particularly those based in Seattle. They want the Alaska market to themselves. They didn't want this foreign competition. And they were representing Congress uh, by Senator Wesley Jones. And they complained to Senator Wesley Jones. And uh, Wesley Jones, in 1920, introduced the Merchant Marine Act of 1920. And Section 27 of that bill eliminated the possibility of transporting goods overland to foreign ports and then on to American ports. And if you compare the language uh, of what's today the Jones Act, Section 27 of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, uh, it's very similar to uh, what the, these Seattle-based shipping companies, they testified in Congress in uh, early 1920, and they proposed an amendment to, to eliminate this foreign competition. If you compare Section 27 to what was asked for by these Seattle-based shipping companies, they're almost identical. Interesting. Uh, so before we get into the act itself, uh, let's start with the Merchant Marine. You mentioned how um, I know from, uh, from uh, James McPherson's uh, history of the Civil War, the Confederate uh, commerce rating destroyed a, a large amount of uh, American shipping. But... On the other side of it, this is the Gilded Age. This is the era in which American industrial might, its ability to create and uh, produce raw materials and machines much cheaper or more efficiently or on a larger scale than anybody else uh, was both renowned and reviled. How is it uh, that when it comes to ships, somehow that wasn't the case? There are a number of factors. I think, you know, first and foremost, we need to recognize that uh, when you 
don't force an industry to compete that inevitably over time they will become uncompetitive. I think that's a fairly predictable result. But uh, what's also noteworthy here is that as we shifted from that era of wooden ships to iron and steel ships, uh, well, we had a domestic uh, iron and uh, steelmaking industry, and they wanted protection and they wanted tariffs. So when you, uh, you know, obviously, if you're building ships of iron and steel, that raised the cost of your inputs. Um, so they, you know, the shipbuilding is a downstream industry, and so U.S. protectionism actually undermined uh, the U.S. shipbuilding industry. So you have, I think, these. Um, twin for these 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 forces of a protectionism that uh, I think deters and disincentivizes innovation um, because you have a captive market where people have to buy what, what you make and B uh, also they were undermined by the cost of, of inputs uh, Europeans did not have to pay as uh, high a price for steel and, and, and iron some of these other inputs that, that American shipbuilders did okay um, so who were who were the main uh, countries uh, that basically outcompeted America uh, in these conditions? Uh, I think the it was the Europeans. Um, they they were dominant. Uh, more specifically, the the British, uh, the Germans, uh, perhaps to a lesser extent, the French. Um, but yeah, th those were the major shipbuilding powers uh, in the late eighteen hundreds. That brings us to, before we discuss the act itself, um, as you mentioned, and rightly so, this was a very protectionist era. This was an era when very high tariffs were placed on various parts of American industry, both raw inputs uh, and, per and perhaps finished goods. This was a time where probably every industry in America would lobby Congress to try and get their industry uh, included in the schedules of tariffs. So I guess the question is not why did the Jones Act happen, but why did it take so long for it to happen? Um, you know, the, the, so if we're talking about, you know, Section 27, the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, uh, I, I think that there was an evolution of our coastwise laws um, as, as, U.S. shipping became uh, more and more uncompetitive, then there became, unsurprisingly, a search for loopholes and ways around it. Uh, so as I mentioned before, we have the example of trying to ship goods from one part of the United States to another part of the United States through a foreign port, through Belgium, and that produced a court case. Uh, and then, uh, or was found actually that was permissible, and then Congress closed that loophole. And so then people looked for other loopholes, and they found the loophole of being able to ship to Alaska. And then that loophole was ultimately closed uh, via the Jones Act. So as as U.S. shipping became more uncompetitive, there were more creative uh, ways to look for uh, ways around it, uh, necessitating Congress to restrict the law even more and more. Okay, so that brings us to the Jones Act. Uh, one thing I noticed when reading the Wikipedia article is that at least part of the justification for the act, uh, formally at least, uh, w sounds very much tied to the First World War because as we know, uh, America entered the First World War largely because of uh, German submarine warfare, not just against uh, ships containing Americans, but American ships. Um, did they really believe uh, that it was that vital to have an absolutely independent American merchant marine at all time, or were they being cynical here? 
Well, the Merchant the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, which contains the Jones Act, uh, that this was passed primarily because, as you noted, the United States entered World War One in 1917, and we had this tremendous need to get uh, men and supplies and equipment from the United States into the European theater of operations. And that requires a lot of ships. And the United States did not have a lot of ships. In fact, uh, there was a crash shipbuilding program to try to build enough ships to transport uh, all these goods and, and, and troops to Europe. Uh, it necessitated, in fact, the construction of brand new shipyards. Um, and what happened is, well, ships, obviously, they, they, they take a while to build. And a number of these ships, I think the majority of ships actually built uh, during the war effort, were not delivered until after the armistice had been signed in November of 1918. So a lot of these ships actually weren't delivered until 1919, 1920. Well, the United States ends the war, and the Treaty of Versailles is signed, and we have a lot of ships on our hand. And so one of the main purposes, actually, of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920 was how to dispose of these ships, what to do with all these ships, and uh, you know how to get them into pri the private sector's hands. So that was one of the main goals of of uh, the Merchant Marine Act. And then, uh, you know, Wesley Senator Jones, he thought, well, while we're at it, while we're overhauling shipping policy, let's also do a favor for my constituents back in Washington State who are complaining about competition uh, going through Vancouver instead of Seattle uh, to Alaska. Let's also note that at this time, Alaska was a territory, meaning it had no voting representation in Congress. I believe it had a non-voting member, uh, kind of like Puerto Rico does today in Congress. But uh, they, so they were kind of powerless to, to head this off. So they were powerless. Um, was there any significant uh, lobby that said, look, we're also in favor of American industry, we're also in favor of American shipping, and we agree with the importance of, the, of national security, but this step seems to go way too far uh, and can even hurt, say, my constituents who rely on as cheap uh, free trade as possible? So there was um, a, a report written um, and I believe 1919 or 1920, uh, it was a House Minority Report um, regarding legislation that ultimately, I believe, became part of the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, in which the authors did say that this kind of protectionism is a bad idea in the long run. The idea is that, well, if you force people to use U.S.-built ships, then that assures us of a vibrant U.S. shipbuilding industry. But this report pointed out that uh, when it came to U.S. steelmaking um, industry, that it was actually the removal of protection that prompted uh, innovation and prompted competitiveness. And I can't remember the exact language used by the authors, but they pointed out, and they said, if we remove this protectionism for U.S. shipbuilding, then they too will be forced to compete and uh, will we'll be able to do so um, just as other industries such as the steel industry were, were, uh, were ultimately able to. So I think there were there's definitely evidence of, of dissent uh, against the, the approach uh, taken by Section 27. Okay, the act is passed disp over the objections of the people you mentioned. Um, were the economic effects of this uh, act felt immediately during the uh, the booming uh, 1920s, uh, or did it take a while for it to set in? 
Well, let's recall that uh, the the this was not a dramatic uh, change in law in in the shipping laws because uh, really it primarily impacted Alaska. Everyone else, they were it was pretty much uh, the same rules as before. It was you know uh, had to be U.S. built, uh, U.S. crewed flagships, etc., to move between U.S. ports. But uh, when it did hit Alaska, uh, according to a number of people, um, I believe a former governor of Alaska, Ernest Gruning, he, he wrote about this and said a number of businesses uh, went out of business um, uh, because the, the economics of, of, of shipping made their business model no longer viable. I believe for you know, one example, I believe there was uh, some wood processing, uh, wood processing firm, uh, some others that uh, due to the high costs following the imposition of the Jones Act, um, you know, they're no longer viable. Okay, uh, so moving a little bit to the future, uh, a little bit untraditionally, how is it that despite the fact that ever since uh, the end of the Second World War, America has in fits and starts uh, back and forth, but generally moved towards an approach of greatly liberalizing uh, its trade and removing the barriers to trade with the rest of the world, uh, how is it that it doesn't seem like even any serious attempt was made to repeal this act, uh, even though it obviously didn't succeed in general. You're right. The The Jones Act is very much an anomaly uh, when placed against the in a broader context uh, and movement towards liberalization, the removal of trade barriers. Uh, the Jones Act has remained basically untouched. Uh, so how to explain this? I think that... Uh, Number one, there's the age-old phenomenon of uh, dispersed costs and concentrated benefits. Uh, the people that uh, benefit from the Jones Act, or at least perceive themselves as benefiting, such as U.S. shipyards, or the people that, uh, the mariners that crew U.S. ships, um, they fight very hard to maintain this law. Uh, I can think of probably a dozen groups off the top of my head that are here in Washington, that one of their top three uh, priorities is maintaining the Jones Act. I can't think of a single group here in D.C., a uh, lobbying group or an industry association that places uh, the reform or the repeal of this law as one of their top priorities. So you have these um, very asymmetrical forces at work, uh, you know, and, and then your average American, uh, frankly, doesn't know the Jones Act exists. Um, this isn't something that people typically go into the voting booth riled up about. Um, in fact, there was an episode of Jeopardy, I believe, two or three years ago at this point, where uh, the category was Puerto Rico, and the $500 question, the, the answer was, was the Jones Act, and none of the contestants knew. Um, so I think that helps explain it. And then as well as, as you've mentioned before, there's, um, there's a perception that the Jones Act is integral to national security, that it's very important that we maintain this law. Um, the argument uh, goes that because of the Jones Act, that it assures the United States of uh, a shipbuilding capability that has obvious utility in time of war or national emergency, that it assures the United States of uh, sufficient ships to transport uh, material and, and supplies during time of war. And then it assures us of mariners that can crew U.S. ships to transport those goods where they're needed, and we don't have to rely on on foreign crews. And if you'd like, I can I can get we can uh, explore that argument deeper, and I can you know I, I think that it's, there's a lot of faulty logic and assumptions there, and I don't think it, it holds up to scrutiny. Perhaps we should expand on this because I mean 
in time of war, one cannot easily rely on other even friendly countries to be wanting to uh, risk their, uh, their, their citizens and their ships uh, in support of your cause, especially, um, I know for instance, uh, to take a very deliberately extreme example, uh, people trying to escape the Nazis uh, had to pay an enormous amount of money to anybody to take a ship anywhere. Um, so why would not uh, that make sense? It's a great question. So I think, yeah, superficially, the, the Jones Act does have this veneer of, of, of logic behind it. And, you know, it's undeniable that in time of war, we do need ships. We do need mariners. It's good to have shipyards both to build ships and, and repair existing ones. Um, my problem with the Jones Act is I think it's a, a failed way of going about this. Um, so let's look at shipbuilding and the state of shipbuilding in this country today. Um, when you look at U.S. shipbuilding, the overwhelming majority, somewhere in the order of 75 to 80% of revenue, it's not commercial con Jones Act construction, it's military, it's government contracts. That's what's keeping U.S. shipbuilding afloat. When you think of the major shipyards in this country, you know, Newport News in Virginia, they build aircraft carriers, no Jones Act ships there. A lot of shipyards, they focus solely on building for the government. Uh, number two, these uh, the few ships that are built. So over the last, I believe, 20 years, for example, um, if you look at all U.S. shipyards combined, an average year, they build three Jones Act ships. When I say ship, I mean an ocean-going ship of over a 1,000 gross tons. So we're not talking about tugboats, smaller craft here, actual ships, the kind of thing you would want in time of war. We don't build very many. Uh, so that means that U.S. shipbuilders lack economies of scale. I mean, to put that three in perspective, a single shipyard in South Korea can build you know 60 to 70 ships in a year. Uh, an inevitable consequence of this is that uh, these U.S. built ships cost much, much more than those in other countries. Um, a U.S. built ship today, a container ship, uh, costs anywhere from you know, around five times more than one built in another country. A U.S. built tanker is around four times more expensive. So, you know, instead of paying uh, roughly, you know, thirty-five, forty million dollars for a tanker in the United States, it costs about one hundred and fifty million dollars or more um, that deters the use of ships in shipping um, we have a fleet that is less than 100 ships uh, when we've had times of war uh, the Jones Act fleet has played a minor role at best for example uh, Operation Desert Shield Desert Storm back in 1990 1991 we were faced with this situation where Iraq invades Kuwait uh, we need to get as many um, supplies as much supplies and equipment to Saudi Arabia as quickly as possible so thank goodness for the Jones Act right well not really uh, there was only one Jones Act ship that actually transported uh, soldiers or equipment rather from the United States to Saudi Arabia uh, the vast majority of ships that were used were government-owned transport ships these are gray hold ships uh, controlled by the US government as well as commercial ships uh, that operate uh, outside of the Jones Act, so U.S. Uh, U.S. flagships um, that operate in foreign trade, not domestic trade, and, and there's a very good reason for this. There aren't a lot of ships here in the United States. If you pull those ships away, well, who's going to transport goods to Hawaii? Who's going to take stuff to Puerto Rico, Alaska, and other non-contiguous states? Who's going to transport uh, refined products, gasoline between U.S. ports on, on ships? So it's very hard 
to, to use that fleet or there's some big downsides to doing so. And then also if you look at uh, that uh, Operations Desert Shield, so as, as a consequence of having uh, this inability to leverage the, the U.S. domestic fleet, in fact, something like 25% of all unit equipment was taken by foreign flagships. The U.S. had to go out and get foreign ships. They actually asked the Soviets twice to borrow one of their ships. They were so desperate for shipping. And we didn't have enough mariners either to crew uh, some of these ships. In fact, uh, I believe uh, the U.S. got saved a bit in, in January of 1990. The Great Lakes froze over, so they were able to use some mariners from the Great Lakes on these ships. But still, they had to turn to veterans, uh, guys who served in the Vietnam War, the Korean War, World War II. I believe there were a few uh, sailors that were in their 80s that had to serve. There was one guy who was 92 years old they had to use to crew these ships. They were really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Um, so I think the theory of the Jones Act um, is, you know, is appealing, but when you compare it to the reality, it doesn't work. Promoting U.S. shipping by forcing Americans to pay four to five times more for new ships is a pretty poor way of promoting our maritime industry. And just one more point. These few U.S. ships that are built, remember I said they're about three per year. They're actually zero built last year. These shipyards that build them, they're overwhelmingly dependent on foreigners to build these ships. Uh, for example, about a decade ago, I believe, maybe 15 years ago, the Philly shipyard uh, built some tankers. Those tankers, each one of them required 500 containers worth of cargo that came from South Korea to build those tankers, as well as, I believe, 25 shipments of bulk uh, products. So, for example, the engine and the propellers and big bulky things like that, th that's all foreign as well. So U.S. shipyards, they take foreign components with foreign designs and basically assemble them and put them together. So, you know, I think U.S. built uh, needs a, a pretty big asterisk next to it. Okay, entirely fair enough. So, if I made you a dictator in charge of this issue, how would you go about finding a way to ensure that the United States has a core reserve of not 80-year-old uh, uh, people who can work ships and ships that they can use if, God forbid, America finds itself in the middle of a war? Right now, the United States has something called the Maritime Security Program. This is a program that involves 60 ships. These are all foreign-built U.S. flagged ships, so, which means that these ships, they uh, trade between the United States and foreign countries, but they are actually it's illegal for these American ships to transport goods between U.S. ports because they aren't U.S. built. Anyway, these 60 ships uh, receive a stipend uh, of over, uh, it was $5 million a year, and I think it's going up this year. Um, and in exchange for that stipend, these ships uh, have to make themselves available in time of war or national emergency when called upon. Um, I am all for, for example, expanding that program and, and go to the Pentagon and say, how many ships do you need? You know, what are our requirements? And, and let's try to meet them. And if the Pentagon says we need 100 ships and we should fund 100 ships, uh, I think that's one way of doing it. If we want more U.S. mariners, I think that one thing we should do is stop making it so expensive for Americans to buy new ships. Uh, if, if Americans could buy ships as inexpensively as other countries, I think we'd have more ships, which would mean more mariners. Um, so I think those are some really good starting points. Um, because another thing with the Jones Act is we don't have a good grasp on how many of these ships would actually be available in time of war. So I think we need some 
we need some certainty around this. The military shouldn't be guessing how many ships will be available. They should know. Um, so, and and let's also uh, keep in mind that U.S. civilian mariners are not under any obligation to serve in time of war or national emergency and crew these ships. I'm not calling anybody's patriotism into question here, but there is, they're not members of the military. They, there isn't an obligation. So exactly how many of them would show up if called upon, we don't know. They may have other obligations to attend to. Um, it may just not be possible for whatever reason for them to crew these ships. So you know, we could explore the formation of a um, merchant marine reserve where the government uh, pays these guys extra to assure that they will be available in time of war. So we need that certainty. And ultimately, I think that because of the uncertainty that this generates, because we don't uh, know how many ships we would have, we don't know how many mariners we'd have. And from what we do know, in fact, a few years ago, the government put out a report trying to assess you know, how many how many mariners would we have? And their best calculation is that, well, actually not their best calculation, but they, they calculate that under a best case scenario, assuming that all those mariners were available, we'd still have a deficit of like 1,800, somewhere around there. So the current approach, um, one of its costs is that it provides us the illusion that, hey, thanks to the Jones Act, we, you know, we have these ships and mariners, but we don't. And it gives us the illusion of security. And I think we need to move away from this setup towards something with um, more uh, more certainty around how many mariners and how many ships would be there. This shouldn't be a guessing game. I think that's well put. Colin Grabo, thank you very much uh, for that introduction and the history and the background uh, of a not very well known, but still very, uh, I guess, unfortunately, very influential uh, law on the American books.